live from a little cafe just south of the border, it's the Dockiverse Podcast, episode 83, Organic Ant Farm. In this episode, we have a monster movie review, connected pulp characters, and the GM's toolkit. And now, let's get things started. Hello there, everybody. This is your host, Doc Cross, welcoming you back to the podcast. I am recording this on April 27th, so I hope your weekends have gone well. The weekend I would be telling you about was just a few days ago here in April, and we went to the Doggy Dash, and we went to an iris show and sale the same day, and I bought some irises for my garden, some really nice ones, including a very bright yellow one. I wanted to get the bright orange ones, but they only had one of those, and some lady snagged it before I could get to it. It's been a pretty good uh, few days here. Nothing outrageous happening, nothing bad. I hope everything's gone well with you. And speaking of things that go well, it's time for me to thank my wonderful, just totally spiffy patrons over on Patreon, who provide money to keep this podcast going, along with blog stuff and all manner of other things. So, thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Jame. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Peter. You guys are great, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Well, folks, it is time for the Monster Movie Review. And we've been doing um, British horror films mid to late 60s generally, and the one I'm going to be talking about now is a total, total suck fest. Uh, Let me start right off by saying that even the great Peter Cushing could not pull this piece of crap out of the dumper. Uh, Of all the movies he ever made, this is the one he liked the least. Everybody that worked on this movie disliked working on it because the budget restrictions got in the way of a bunch of things. I'll I'll talk about that later. But this is just a dog of a movie with, or added extra suckage, a terrible premise. It's called The Blood Beast Terror. It is a 1968 British horror movie directed by Vernon Sowell and starring Peter Cushing, Robert Fleming, and Wanda Ventham. Now, just a little bit of trivia here. Wanda Ventham is the mother of Benedict Cumberbatch, who is like an enormous star and probably would never do a movie like this. It was released by Tygon Films in February of 1968. In the United States, it was released by Pacemaker Pictures on a double bill with Slaughter of the Vampires, and it was released under the title of The Vampire Beast Craves Blood. The film was also released as Blood Beast from Hell, and Death's Head Vampire. None of these improved the movie at any point. They're just different titles trying to sell a piece of shit movie. So the story, and I'm not going to go into too great a depth here, in the 19th century in Great Britain, a series of grisly murders are taking place in the countryside near London. The victims are good-looking young men between the ages of 20 and 30 and all of them have their throats torn open and their blood drained. The witness of the latest murder, a coachman named Joe Trigger, 
is driven insane when he catches a glimpse of the mysterious killer. Investigating the deaths are Detective Inspector Quenell, played by Peter Cushing, and his assistant, Sergeant Allen, played by Glenn Edwards. Because Joe keeps ranting about a horrible winged creature with huge eyes, Quinnell hatches a theory that perhaps a homicidal eagle is on the loose. Yeah, okay. The movie would have been better if it had been about a homicidal eagle. At the scene of the latest killing, several shiny scales are discovered. Scales. No, it's not a walking fish, although that would have been a better movie. The two latest victims were students of the renowned entomology professor, Dr. Carl Mallinger, played by Robert Fleming, who lives nearby with his beautiful daughter, Claire, Wanda Ventham, and their scar-faced butler, Granger, played by Kevin Stoney, who probably had to be stoned to do this movie. When Quinnell brings the scales to Mallinger for identification, Mallinger behaves suspiciously and tries to take all of them. Quinnell describes his theory about a killer eagle, but Mallinger dismisses it outright. Quinnell is unaware that the entomologist has a pet eagle, which is tormented by the sadistic Granger. Because of course it is. That's what people who have facial scars and stuff like that do in these sort of movies. But it doesn't fucking matter, because the eagle is a red herring, and I'm going to cut with explaining any more of the plot and saying any more about what goes on, because... The killer monster in this movie is a giant death's head moth. It's a moth, folks. It's not completely a moth. It's a fucking were-moth. And if that doesn't make you go, holy fucking shit, what kind of goofy-ass movie is this? I don't know what will. But to elaborate, the were-moth is Malinger's daughter, Claire. And you can bet that Benedict Cumberbatch's mother was not ever putting this right up front on her list of things she'd acted in. No. It's a fucking were-moth. Let that sink in, and I'll say it again. A were-moth. Okay? She turns into a giant moth thing, and she rips the throats out of guys, and her dad, who is the one that made her this way, is trying to find a young man that he can fuck with scientifically and turn into her mate so that they will produce a shitload of other little were-moths. That's it, folks. It's a fucking were-moth. It's just a terrible movie. I saw this movie, I think, uh, two or three years after it came out, early 70s. Pretty sure i just gotten my driver's license, so it might have been 1970. We watched the movie... And we all thought it was probably an eagle that had been trained to kill people by the fucking button. No, it wasn't any of that shit. Then we realized it's a were-moth. And after that, it was just, we sat there boggled. I, I actually do remember that it was one of the few times I went to the drive-in with just some of my buddies. No, no girls involved. And we're just sitting there in the front of my pickup, in the cab of my pickup, watching this movie going, it's a fucking moth. It's a were-moth. What the hell? They couldn't make a movie about a werewolf or a were-tiger or something? It's a fucking were-moth or just a straight-up vampire? Or some kind of zombie? Were-moth? How fucked up drunk was somebody when they thought of that? Anyway, we'll go on with some interesting facts about the movie. 
This is one of the many films that Peter Cushing made about this time to help pay for the health treatments of his beloved wife, Helene, who died of emphysema in 1971. If you see a Peter Cushing movie where, you know, it's low budget and, you know, he looks like he's doing it for the money, there you go. He was doing it for the money. Peter Cushing considered this to be the worst of his many films. Now think about that. Peter Cushing did over 100 movies, and this is the one that was worst. And i got to agree with him. Robert Fleming reportedly hated working on this film. Most of the cast complained about how small the sets were because they were trying to save money because uh, the budget was so low. Some of the voices are dubbed. And here's an interesting thing. Here's the luckiest actor in Hollywood. Basil Rathbone was due to play a part in the film, but he died before filming started. Now, towards the end of his career, Basil Rathbone did some crappy low-budget horror movies and a couple of science fiction movies, I believe. This would have been just the icing on that shit cake, you know, those last few years of a great actor going down the toilet. So anyway, folks, that is just... I can't I can't tell you how bad this movie is. It's Blood Beast Terror. If you've never seen it, and I've spoiled it for you by telling you it's about a were-moth, then consider yourself lucky. But if you're really an aficionado of movies that suck, go ahead and see this, but don't say I didn't warn you. And... Hopefully, in two weeks, I will have a somewhat better movie because our theme for these monster movie reviews is going to be plants that kill people. So, you got that to look forward to. Alrighty, folks, we are moving on to connected pulp characters. And I would like to take a moment to say if I'm not speaking as loudly as I normally do, are not coming through with quite the volume. It's because I'm recording this at night in my kitchen and I don't want to be really loud and wake up either my wife or my dog. So hopefully I'll pump a little volume into this when I do the edit. Anyway, our connected pulp characters are related because they both knew Dex Marley, our private eye from last time. They knew him during the Great War. And Dex was doing some intelligence work and he met a French pilot who was actually an American from Louisiana named Anton Dupre, whose nickname was Paris because as soon as he could leave the very segregated and racist South, he shot right out to Paris so he could fly planes and shoot down Germans. And he took along with him his boyhood pal, Frank Drew, who is a wizard of a mechanic, and also pretty good in a fight. So Paris Dupre and Frank Drew spent a lot of time in France after the war, and then they came home, and they do odd jobs, delivering things, stuff like that, but they also get into trouble. They also are available to ferry people from one wild-ass adventure to another wild-ass adventure and get involved along the way. To describe them, if Anton Dupre was being played in a movie, 
I would probably cast about a 30-year-old Denzel Washington with a mustache. If Frank Drew was being played, I would probably cast, oh, I don't know, a young Cuba Gooding Jr. And these two guys are, like I say, they love flying. They love working on the planes. They love women. They're not adverse to uh, a little bit of gambling, a little bit of drink, doing things to make money that don't necessarily involve flying planes, like going off and looking for jewels in the jungle, stuff like that. They are, like I say, available to people who want to hire them. So your players could meet these guys and hire them. Depending on how you play your pulp game, they could also encounter racism because they're both African-American. Or maybe you don't have that in your game. I don't bring it up a super lot when I run pulp games, but there are sometimes I do uh, for a little bit of realism, not too terrible uh, stuff. But Anyway, Anton is unmarried. Frank is unmarried. At this juncture, they would both probably be in their 40s. And neither one of them is looking to get married. They've got quite a number of girlfriends. And they're just really useful. They're both good in a fight. They both can shoot guns. Uh, Anton has more than one plane. So if you need to go somewhere in a smaller, faster plane, he can do that. If you need to go somewhere in a larger cargo plane to you know, take something somewhere or bring something back, he can do that. Frank can fix anything with wings. Uh, give him some spit, bubble gum, and a screwdriver, and maybe a rock, and he can you know, fix your plane, get it going. They're both excellent guys to have around, and I hope that you can use them in your pulp game. And next time, we'll have a couple of folks that are connected to these two characters. Now we move on to GM's Toolkit, and this one is about games, sessions, adventures, and how you stretch them out or don't, or how you connect them. First off, for your game, you assumedly have picked a game everybody wants to play. Uh, lots of times this may not be what the GM would like to run, because that's the other curse of GMing is trying to get your players to try something new. Some lucky GMs have players that will play all sorts of games. You buy the latest game, and by golly, they're game to play it. Most GMs, once you've played one game for a while, and the players like it, and I'm looking at you, Dungeons & Dragons, in all your forms, it's often like pulling teeth to get them to try anything else. Maybe you'll get them to try another fantasy game, uh, you might get them to play some pulp or something if you can find people nowadays who even know what pulp is about. Because, let's face it, if you're under about 40, you're not going to know a whole hell of a lot about pulp. I mean, you can explain it to them like, whoa, it's Indiana Jones. Oh, okay, we know, we know about Indiana Jones. That's an old movie. <sighs> anyway, so you've found a game. Your sessions... How long they're going to be, that's up to you, that's up to scheduling, stuff like that. But the important thing here, where we're talking about the adventures themselves, are how do you end your sessions? 
I like to end sessions either during a rest or with a cliffhanger. Sometimes you can't do either. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, you're, you're heading down the road to Tinkerville. Come out of the dungeon. You're not too badly beaten up. And I'll see you next week. Sometimes, though, you can say, and you're just about to kill the red dragon when the floor starts to crumble underneath all of you. See you next week. And your players are like, what? And that's good, because that brings them back. And sometimes you just say, well, okay, uh, you're done with uh, doing your thing, you're taking a rest, and we'll start next week. So those are ways you can end a session. As far as beginning a session, or beginning a game for that matter, and we've been talking about pulp, so I'll use my one of my favorite things for pulp, is I start in media res. I start right in the middle of the action. I start very often with, you're driving down the country road, there's a car right next to you, and they're shooting at you with a Tommy gun. And everybody's like, what? And I say, that's what you do. What are you doing? And then they got to figure out what they're doing, and then you can backtrack when they get somewhere after they knock the other car off the road or whatever. You can backtrack and say, okay, so this is how you got this way. Yesterday, a lady came to you with a story about her father and blah, 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 blah. And then you bring them up to speed. But believe me, starting in the middle of things, usually with violence or a fist fight or a barroom brawl or a gunfight, a sinking ship, we did that one time, that got them going. That's a great way to start a session and start a game. Now, are your sessions long or short? That's, once again, sometimes way, usually way out of your hands. But if you have control, make the session fit what you have kind of planned for that part of the adventure or what comes up with the players going off on wild-ass tangents, which they'll do. The big thing about running games is how do you structure the game? Is it an ongoing series with a plot line? where there may be working for somebody, and every few game sessions they've finished a, a episode and then they get another secret message or their boss calls them in and says, now you got to go do this, and so they go do that. Or do you run unconnected sessions, just a big sandbox? So maybe they go off and you're thinking, well, it'll take them about two sessions to go and investigate those zombies, except their players, so it might take 15 sessions for them to get around to actually checking out the zombies because nobody told them to go check out the zombies. They just kind of were headed that way. Another thing, and I've discussed this recently, is a story arc. Do you have an idea for a grand story arc that covers possibly multi-years in real time, if your group lasts that long? Or do you do smaller story arcs that maybe don't really have much to do with each other aside from advancing the characters from beginning characters to later characters or advancing them from poverty to wealth or wealth to poverty. I kind of like a grand story arc, but one of the things I've learned over the years is you've got to wait to figure out what your story arc is going to be. You've got to learn what your players and your the characters are playing are like. You know, are, are, the, are the players themselves just really fixated on killing things and taking its stuff. Okay, you can do that. And you can make a story arc out of that, too. As they get wealthier and wealthier, they start to discover they've made a lot of enemies. 
They owe a lot of money in taxes. Uh, they got a lot of people trying to steal their shit, maybe with or without killing them. And then sometimes you have things that happen, like in my last big game that just ended here recently, where time travel came into it. And they did one bit of time travel, and I thought, well, you know, let's do this time travel bit, and then let's bring them back, and they're out of phase with time, and they've got to get up to a certain point, and they can change some things in the past to help them get there. And then I tossed them in the past, and that's where the game came to an end after a while. So grand story arcs or smaller arcs. The smaller arc can be, like I say, completely unconnected. Maybe they have the story arc of rescuing the princess who doesn't want to be rescued, and that takes X number of game sessions. And then maybe you have them screw around in town, buy stuff, spend their money on ale and whores, and then they have another story arc. And that's the adventure of going across the country to retrieve some of their shit that got stolen by somebody. Or, hey, they got drunk and now they want to go explore such and such island. You have small story arcs. Those are great. And you can actually work those into a larger story arc if you want. So that's the thing about sessions and adventures as far as length and running them. One thing I don't talk about and I won't be talking about, is running pre-published adventures because I don't do it. I've run a couple in my entire 40-odd years of running games, and they were changed heavily. And that is something you can do for adventures, is take a classic adventure and completely alter the circumstances of it. If the original adventure was going up against giants, shit can the giants and have them go up against... I don't know, a coven of witches or the evil duke. Maybe you got a lot of the same stuff that you're taking out of this published adventure, but it's not the same. It's not the one that they played X number of years ago when their brother ran a game farm or something. So that's something to think about. Anyway, folks, that's the GM's toolkit about games, sessions, and adventures. And next time, we'll talk about something else. Well, here we are at the end of the program, and I want to thank you for listening, folks. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Dockiverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening via Anchor, you can leave a voicemail. And on Patreon, you can leave me a message, and I will get told about it within seconds. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts weeks before they go up on Anchor, in fact, months, go to www.patreon.com forward slash dot cross. I also have a Ko-fi or coffee page now, so if you just want to do a one-time $3 or more gift, you know, say, okay, Doc, you know, I like that last episode. I don't want to sign up for Patreon, but here you go. Here's three or four bucks. You can go to Ko-fi where I am, Doc Cross 4591. Apparently there were a shitload of Doc Crosses before me. I don't know. If you would like to support this podcast by advertising on it or just giving me a bunch of money or sponsor it, whatever you want, get in touch with me by any of the methods I just mentioned. Our music was Greaser by Track Tribe off of Google Music. 
This podcast and everything on it, except the music, is copyright 2022 by Doc Cross. I will see all of you next episode. Live long and prosper.